0: and father we just thank you for just such an intimate time of worship but now father we pray as we get into your word that once again you would guide us and speak us that you would make these things real to our lives that you would make them practical and obtainable and father through the doing of your word we pray that we would glorify you that others would see christ in us so fill us with your spirit for your purposes we ask in jesus name amen turn to greet your neighbors Greetings. One, one little c- c- or at the end of one little one? <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> Hello, hi birdie. Well, it's that time of the month that we have our young theologians to come. They will be getting this very lovely medal, for those who memorize three verses and a pen for the other, there's an a etched picture of Pastor Mike on that one. <laughs> Not really. They'll be reciting Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Okay, so why don't you guys kind of gather right here. Don't fall off the edge or you'll break a leg or something. We're not, we're not covered. We don't have your insurance. Man, we got a whole bunch of guys. Why don't you come up here? I'll stand in the back. Okay, so everybody knows the verse? Yes. Sure? Okay, you ready? Now, you've got to say it loud because we don't have a microphone. Maybe they can put this one. Oh, they do have it on. Okay, so you'll say it loud so everybody can hear. Okay, one, three... Three. In six days the, Lord and the, earth, the sea and, all that is abundant, and on the seventh day. The Lord, was the day holiday, holiday holiday, and 21, 21. All right, guys, go ahead and go back that way. Go back around. Teacher Martin. Martin. Okay, thank you. Here at our church we use the Answers in Genesis curriculum. It's based on apologetics. We're trying to teach our children to give a reason for the hope that is within them, and so we go through creation, we go through the scriptures. (laughs) Apparently, somebody disagrees. Um (laughs) and uh and it 's just because we know that they 're going into secular school a lot of them, and they 're being taught things contrary to the bible, and so we 're not just teaching them biblical facts we 're also teaching them how to come up against those things that are contrary to the scriptures again, we have take home sheets with our with our uh, that we give to the children, I believe it 's on the back of them they have a a a little plan for devotions that you could go home and you can speak of these things with them, you can talk with them and get into discussions according to the scriptures. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, it's the last of the Old Testament books. We've been looking at it for a couple of weeks and we have arrived at verses 10 through 17. Here this morning and as always if you arrived here today without a bible we'd like for you to follow along and there should be one in front of you underneath the seat if there isn't if you raise your hands the ushers will bring one to you does anybody need a bible there's one right there as you're turning there we had our men's retreat last week went very well as far as i know they all came back home and uh it was just blessed of the lord And then yesterday, we had a funeral here. Uh, Sally, her sister, had passed away a few weeks ago. We had a memorial service. Um, That all went well. Six people made a commitment to Christ. And so that was a good thing. And there was a couple guys up at the retreat that committed or recommitted their lives to Christ as well. So God, God is definitely very good. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 2, I'll be picking up at verse 10. Now keep in mind, the priests are being addressed, the spiritual leaders of the time. God, through Malachi, is making charges against the, the priesthood and the things that they're doing. Verse 10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you do. You covered the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. It covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him, and that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? Lord, we know where the God of justice is. You are seated upon the throne. And Lord, as we look at these concepts written so long ago, make them real in our lives today. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to regard to how we deal with one another, how we minister to one another, and how we treat one another. Lord, it would be far from us that we would deal treacherously with one another. And so, Father, as we see the priesthood, those who were to be representing you to the people and the people to you, have become corrupt, I pray, Father, that we would be pure in all of our ways, in your sight, filled with the Spirit, and minister to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. There's only one relationship that mankind has that the dedication to it is to be on par with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Not as important as our relationship with Jesus Christ, because that's of the utmost importance. But our dedication to it is to be on par with our relationship with Christ, and that would be marriage. As far as the marriage relationship, we're told in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Concerning our relationship with Jesus Christ in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. There's the fulfillment of the image of God that is seen in man and wife as they are married together in Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, husband and wife by design or to fulfill the image of God through their marriage. And then, fourthly, there is to be the joining together of a marriage and Christ. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, though one may be overpowered by another, Two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. But that threefold cord that is not quickly broken, it can be broken. Now, obviously, there's lessons to be learned here of marriage, but we also need to see here, really, foremost, is our dedication to God and our dedication to the Word of God based upon a fear of the Lord, based upon a respect of who God is. Somebody you don't respect you're not going to listen, you're not going to follow through. Somebody that you have the utmost of respect for, you're going to be front and center. You're going to be listening and you're going to be preparing to do. So what God says when this threefold cord is, is broken, it's going to cause a lot of violence. What did it take to bring down the World Trade Centers? There was a lot of violence. You saw the explosion. You saw how things were falling apart, and you saw the fire. And then almost surreal, before your very eyes, you saw those buildings come down. Now, those buildings were grand and glorious. I can remember we went back to visit relatives in New York. I think it was 1968, but the World Trade Centers were being built. And I remember as we drove by them, my aunts were telling me that these were going to be the tallest buildings in the world and they became something that was a symbol of the New York skyline, of American ingenuity and finance, and all of these things together. And really what it did is it made them a, a target, an effective target. But these buildings that were so strong and were so tall, they were reduced to rubble in even a matter of minutes. It caused, because of that, a broken nation, perplexed spirits, frustration, and even war. War. And we see that which should have been able to stand strong just because it couldn't endure an outside attack it got taken down. The magnitude of the commitment that we make in marriage speaks volumes even of the state of our society to get today. With the downfall of marriage that we have seen, we've seen the downfall of family. With the downfall of family, we've seen the downfall of state. With the downfall of state, we've seen the downfall of society. As a result of downfall, well, all of these downfalls, we've seen a downfall in our perception of God and who God is. And maybe that even works backwards because we have had a downfall in our perception of who God is. All these other things have fallen apart. But the fact of the matter is this institution that God had determined that was going to stand so strong and be a monument between, well, as an example of his relationship with us, seen through the marriage relationship, it's been torpedoed, and it just as grand and glorious was the fall of the the World Trade Center, and I mean that in a negative way, so has the same thing been in the institution of marriage. A couple of weeks ago, we saw the state of the heart of the religious leaders who do not fear God. We saw the leader who does not fear God, they give him no glory. They defile the worship that is due to the Lord. They spiritually and physically harm the people and their prayers are not heard. Last time we met, we saw the heart of one who does fear the Lord. Leaders who do fear God have a reverence for God. They are committed to His Word. Their life is marked by godlike character, or what we would call godliness, and they preserve knowledge. They preserve the knowledge of the Lord or, or the Word of God. It all works together. In Psalm 111, verse 10, we are told, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." A good understanding have those who do His commandments and His praise endures forever. Today, there's no fear of God in the land. If you would look at this land, if you would look at the landscape of America, if you were a third party and look at it, you would come to that conclusion. There's no fear, there's no respect of God in this land. And let's take out the secular world. Let's look at what's called the church. Is there a fear of God in the church even? I think you could even doubt that. How about this church? How about if we took a cross-section of our church? Because this is where we are responsible. It's so easy to stand up here and say we're the perfect church and point fingers at other people. But that's not what we're supposed to be doing. See, every time we crack open the word, we need to crack open our heart. And we need to make an evaluation of where are we at in the sight of God. And so if we crack open our church, is there a fear of God? And then don't even look at the church, look at yourself. Look at yourself. Is there a true fear of God? A true fear of God that drives you in your obedience to the Lord? My wife and I, every week, we pray for our grandchildren. We have six grandchildren that are out walking around, one still up in the womb for another month and a half or so. But we pray for each one of them. So seven grandchildren, seven days. So every day we pray for a grandchild. And we have a basic theme, and and this week is obedience. Because in Christianity, we can be so much and do so many different things, but are we really obedient to the Lord? Well, the degree to which you're obedient to God is going to be based upon the magnitude to which you have a fear of the Lord. Understanding that He could have condemned my soul for all of eternity, but through His graciousness and His love, He made the decision to save me. And because of that, I need to give back to him. Not so much that he's desiring my works, but just because I have a fear of God, I give back to him in worship, and worship extends across so many different ways in the Christian life. And so there is no fear of God in our land, and we see this best exemplified today in the state of marriage in this nation. The United States of America, through the surveys that were done, has the highest divorce rate in all of the world even within the church unfortunately the divorce rate within the church it parallels that of the world and you can even go deeper than that the divorce rates of pastors are the same as the congregation which is in the same which is the same as those people who are out in the world there's no difference what happens when there's no difference between the church and there's no difference between the world And then you would have to ask once again, where's the fear of the Lord? And who's really got the responsibility? Well, the main responsibility has got to lie right here. It's got to lie behind the pulpit. Uh, The person who's preaching the word must first understand and know the word, but he's also got to live the word. And I know there's so many different scenarios that can be presented, but the fact of the matter is it's a shameful thing to see that the divorce rate of the world reflects that of the pastor behind the pulpit. And of course, if that's going to be the case, then it's also going to be reflected in the congregant as well. Paul, in describing man's sinful nature apart from Christ, said in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so it boils back down to that, to have a respect for God. How do we display a respect for God. We display a respect for God or a fear of the Lord through obedience to his word. And so we open up our Bibles and we look at the word of God and are we being obedient to the word of God? Or are we just coming to a Sunday sermon and just sitting in the pews once again and not really, well, not even really listening or not even hearing? We can all do the same thing. I can do the same thing up here, just teaching sermon after sermon. But as we see in the book of Revelation in the chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see the Spirit speaking to the messenger of the church. And he's speaking through that messenger. Now, the messenger of the church in those seven churches in Revelation is the pastor, the person that God's got in that place. And he's desiring to speak through that person to the congregation. And so even as we go to Malachi today, what does God have to say to us? And it's not so much that this is a divorce thing. This is, the, this is just what God is using to convey the message of disobedience and a lack of fear. Because, again, we see this commonality throughout Malachi. What are the leaders doing as the accusation is being made against them? God, through the prophet, are standing up and basically saying, oh, yeah, well, how did we done that? You know, they're confronting the God who is confronting them. When God confronts you, just be open to the correction and do it. It'll go a lot better for you if you do that, if you don't kick against the goads, take it for somebody who's kicked pretty hard at times. And so marriage, marriage is a core issue in God's eyes. He addresses its state amongst those who do not fear Him. So the first thing that he has to say here in verse 10, God, through the prophet, addresses their detestable ways. Verse 10, have we not all one father? And so he's talking about, aren't we all equal here in the sight of God? Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Now, he's speaking in general terms here. He's going to narrow it down to marriage because he's going to take what should be the best case scenario of unity. But since these men have no fear of God, there's going to be disunity in the land. Now, I made this statement just a little while ago. That's so easy to make. Our nation, well, from a pulpit, there's plenty of ammunition to shoot against our nation here. But I said, there's no fear of God in this land. Well, if there's unity or disunity is an example or at least a byproduct of no fear of God, then there is definitely no fear of God in this country, especially we see this as exemplified in the election year. Now, I've been alive since 1957. I've been aware of these things, probably the first election I can... I remember when Kennedy was elected and Goldwater days and all of that, but probably Nixon was the first real election that I, I kind of understood everything that was going on, Nixon and Humphrey. I never remember it being this bad. I never remember this much mud being slung and this much disunity that if you come up against somebody with opposing point of view than you have, there's the name-calling, there's the insulting, and everything else down the line. We live in a nation that we can no longer freely express our ideas. See, that's the essence of Christianity, that there would be a give-and-take in society of the exchange, free exchange of ideas. And we want to keep that because we know that what we believe is always going to overcome what the world thinks that they know. But what happens when that ability to communicate is cut off when it no longer exists? And people are going to be closed off to the gospel. And so no fear of God throughout the land. An example of that is disunity. We really, lived in a, we really live in a fragmented society today. So because of the theme of unity that flows throughout God and his creation, ought not we cultivate that in all of our relationships? It was the reason why we have a men's retreat, so we'd have unity amongst the men. It's kind of a neat thing. We have a men's study on Wednesday morning, six thirty Wednesday morning, and we get together for the first half hour. We eat. Um, what do we eat? We eat uh, sausage and eggs, and sometimes we have pancakes and whatever. And the food is it really that great? Well, the food isn't that bad, but it's not the food. It, it, it's one another. It, it's as we get together with one another, so the cooks. The cooks are great. Why? Because they're fostering fellowship. And that's the idea. We get together and we kind of have this good core group. And there, 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 there's probably about three guys from three or four different churches that attend this. And it's just a really neat time because we're unified in, in body and in spirit and, and in the things that the Lord has for men in, in, in the body of Christ. And that's how it's supposed to be. You know, how much more so marriage, especially when you consider its place in God's heart and the purpose in God's plan. The following verses tell us that this treachery has to do with the abuse of marriage and the misuse of the institution. And really what I think it is, I I think it's just because when you have a divisive land or divisive heart, it's going to be manifest in so many different ways. So I bring up the political arena, and you can say, well, of course, that's just a natural. But when it comes to marriage, it ought not to be. It ought not to be named. And so once it permeates through to the marriage relationship, you know that it has saturated society to a very poor degree, or, well, a very great degree that has done much harm. Look at verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. God wants to communicate something very special, something very important in His combining marriage and the past covenant together. See, His past covenant was always about the sending of His Son. Remember Mary? She was blessed amongst women. She was no different than any of the other women. It's just that because God had chose her to deliver the Christ child that she was blessed amongst women. But after all of those generations of hopeful Jewish women, she's the one who would give birth to Messiah, but there was always the hope that, well, on a marriage night, as a man and wife would get together, there was always the hope that maybe it's going to be us. Maybe that promise that was given back in Genesis chapter 3 it's going to be fulfilled through us. When God says, uh, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then even to Abraham, it says, in his seed were the promises made. He does not say the seeds as in plural, as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ? So it was all about the coming of Christ. In Genesis chapter 17, there was the, the, the... the giving of the circumcision command by God because his people were to be a unique people. Well, I mean, you kind of think about that. Really? Circumcision? What's the big thing about it? It's kind of weird when you think about it. Well, God always wanted husband and wife to remember on their wedding night, but also at the birth of a male child when they would be performing the circumcision of that great promise that was given. See, now we can look back and remember the promise based upon the cross of Christ, but they were always looking into the future, into the unknown, and so with every circumcision, with every wedding night get-together, if you will, there was always the remembrance of the great things that God was going to do. Now, it wasn't just great things that God was going to do, it was great things that God was going to do through the future generations, that maybe this child, because I've got four children, and as I said, I've got seven grandchildren. And every time a child is born, there's this unique human being that comes into the world. This unique human being that what's God going to do in and through this one? There's always great potential. Maybe that you know today I think maybe this one maybe this one is going to set the world on its ear as the apostles did so many years ago. Maybe the last great revival is going to come about because of this child, male or female. Maybe God's going to do something great with this child. You just never know. Well, I know He's going to do something great with it, but maybe He's going to do something to a magnitude that we never even dreamed possible. There's always that hope. And so God instituted circumcision for that purpose that they would remember the promise that was given. Again, verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. Well, Judah, we know that that was going to be the line through which Christ has come. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, it was prophesied by, by, by the Lord that, 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 that Messiah would come through this, this line as Jacob was speaking to his sons. But look what you're doing. In essence, he's saying... You're looking to the heathen of the land based upon that which is fleshly and not spiritual. Again, verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. This was a huge problem at the time. Now, Malachi, well just before Malachi really came upon the scene, there was a little overlap with Ezra, and we can see, well Ezra was dealing with the same thing. In Ezra chapter 9 verses 1 through 2, it says, "When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests of the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land." Now again, he's talking about the priest and the Levites. Just as I was talking about the pastor behind the pulpit and their divorce rate being as high as everybody else, these leaders are are committing this great sin. The people of Israel and the priests of the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hands of the leaders and the rulers have been foremost in this trespass. Why would they do that? Well, obviously, because they're acting forth in the flesh. But really what they've done is they've given up on God. They've given up on God because, well, it had to be a joining together of like tribe people the people that God has called them to be married with in order to produce the Messiah. That was God's intent in that lineage. Again, they don't know it to the degree that we know it today, but now they've given up on the promises of God. And if you give up on the promises of God, you give up on the future that God has for you. And if you give up on the future that God has for you, what hope do you really have? Now Malachi, he was a contemporary of Nehemiah, and again we see these things reflected in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23, it says, in those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. Now when you see children here, in Malachi, just think future generations. It's just the future generations of the church, future generations of God's people, Future generations of the fulfillment of God's promises. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them. So what you need to see is the magnitude to which Nehemiah is upset here. Now, why would he be upset? Because you could just say, you know what? You do that, you're going to pay the price. Well, they're just being reestablished back from Babylonian captivity. Why did they go into Babylonian captivity? Because they were marrying foreign women and they got involved in idolatry, and that's something that God was not going to stand for. He brought them into Babylonian captivity so that they would come to their senses, if you will. And then he released them, and now there's this great freedom, but Neomiacene, they're going back to what happened before. And so he's not wanting to see that occur and says, so I contended with them. Now look to the degree that he's upset here. And cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall give your daughters as wives to their sons and not take their daughters to your sons or yourselves. Uh, he was pretty upset. Somebody asked me if I was married once to an unbeliever before Terry because I don't have any hair. But that wasn't so. She pulled, I told my grandkids... Grandma pulls it out at night while I'm sleeping. As I wake up, more and more is gone. Notice how these women are described. They're described as daughters of a foreign god. Who are we? We're sons of God through faith in Jesus. But they are daughters of foreign gods. And so they're going to be that which is diametrically opposed to one another. How could there possibly be the joining of the two together? Very simple to understand. A foreign god will beget a fleshly world spirit. If they worship mammon, they will make money their priority. If they worship Molech, they will make lust their priority. To be a child of the living God, that will beget a godly spirit who will worship the Lord in all that they do. How can the two coexist? How can you worship lust or money or whatever it might be and worship the living God. Now again, going back to what Israel was doing before they went into captivity, it's exactly what they were doing. They still had the temple. They were still making sacrifices to God. The problem is they were also worshiping to the false gods on every high hill. Even when Aaron made that calf that went into the fire, and then he said, you know, we threw gold in and it popped out and they were worshiping. He said, this is the God. And basically what he's saying, this is the representation of the God who led us out of Egyptian captivity. And so he probably thought he wasn't too far off. See, they couldn't see Moses anymore. He went to be with God. He delayed in his coming back. And so these people got to see something because they're not full of faith. And Aaron probably realized that, made this calf. And so now they've kind of joined the worshiping of God together with the way that the people of the land worship. And in the sight of God, that's unacceptable. Before they came into the land, God told them in Deuteronomy, do not worship on every high hill as the heathen do. Now, he wasn't even talking about worshiping false gods. He's talking about even worshiping him. Don't worship me as the heathen worship their God. He says, I will give you the area that you are, and we know that to be Jerusalem. Now we know how that we worship the Lord in spirit and truth today, but it was all working in that direction. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. There's no excuse for this. He's saying for being awake and aware, awake and aware, being a teacher and a student. See, you're accountable. The more you know, you're accountable. I encourage you to come to church, come to Bible studies, read your Bible, pray about it, and I got you. You're accountable. See, the more you know, the more you're responsible to do. And, well, it would be a greater travesty if I let you go off in your ignorance. But now that we do know, we're responsible to do these things. Jesus basically said when he gave that example in John chapter 13, blessed are you if you do these things. So how many people are there that sit in Bible study after Bible study, gather the information, assimilate the information, but just never do the information, you'll be held accountable to that. You'll be held accountable. If you sat in church and heard the gospel time after time after time and never made a commitment to Christ, Now, when I say made a commitment to Christ, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, then you're going to be held accountable to that. To whom much is given, much is expected. And so, by being awake and aware, they're accountable before a holy God. And so, those of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, You will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise up and play the harlot with gods of the foreign lands, and they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. And so you're looking at that, and you're thinking, well, why did you even bring them into the promised land, Lord? Why did you even do those things? And what you need to see that on the other hand is the graciousness of God. And what I'm trying to point out is this contrast is to our responsibility. I'm held accountable. But also, God is very gracious that he brought Israel into the promised land, even though he knew that they were going to break the covenant and all of these things. But again, he's gracious. And so what I need to see in that is, as I I know what I know, and I'm going to be held accountable to that, I just need to give my heart towards that. I think it was in the devotion that I posted this morning. It was yesterday, I don't recall. But King David, you look at King David's life, And you look at Saul's life, King Saul, who was king before him. Which one was saved? Just looking at their works and what's written about them, which one was saved and which one wasn't saved? I could probably make a better case for King Saul than I could King David. But then we're told in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, King David was a man after God's own heart. That's the portion that God sees, and that's where the evaluation is made. And so, as far as I'm concerned, I want that confidence to know that I'm walking in God's grace, that I'm being obedient, that I have a fear of the Lord. And when I fail, and I'm going to fail, we're all going to fail, there's the grace of God that enables me to get back into the game and to continue to move on. There's this balance that's there. Again, just before God led them into the promised land, knew they were going to mess up. On the day that God saved you, he knew he wasn't getting any prize. He knew that you were going to mess up. You may think a lot of you. Your mom may think a lot of you. But God knows the truth about you. But that's okay. I want a God that knows all that there is to know about me. Because if you're hiding something back, you're no different than Adam and Eve, hiding in the, bud, in the bushes covered with fig leaves. And can you imagine how ridiculous they must have looked to God That's how ridiculous we look when we're trying to hide sin or sinful nature, whatever it might be from God. And the problem with that is, as if you could hide anything from God, any sin that you hide from God isn't being dealt with. God wants it all laid out there on the table. Lay it all out there on the table. You don't have to tell me. I don't want to know all of your sins. It'll probably scare me. You probably don't want to know mine. But God does, because God's the one who... Who can deal with it? Actually, I should say it a little bit different. God's the one who has dealt with it. You just need to truly enter into what God has done. Look at, go ahead and turn over to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, chapter six, verse fourteen. Now we're not too up on commandments in the New Testament. You know, very rarely do we point something out as being a commandment, but there are commandments that have been given in the New Testament. Jesus said, go forth and make disciples, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we're told not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. We're told to come to church. That's a commandment from God. And then here we have a commandment from God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, the, the, con- the context of that is, and basically whatever it is that you've been set to do. If we're doing a work here at church, we're not to bring the unbeliever in. If you're opening up a business, you ought not to have a business partner that's not saved. And again, how much more so if you're married? Because the context here is yoked together. Two oxen that were yoked together were to go out to do a task. And the idea is if you have one of a different nature than the other, they're going to be fighting against one another and the task will never become accomplished. So do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so he's just speaking of some things here that just make common sense. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Well, the answer is none. And what communion has light with darkness? The answer is none. And what accord has Christ with Beal? None. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? None. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. For you are the temple of the living God. And so we're the Lord's. And if I am yoked together in marriage, if I'm yoked together in a business dealing, if I'm yoked together, whatever it might be, with an unbeliever, I'm not going to be able to glorify God through the life or through the business, or through the marriage, and how could I possibly pray God bless that? Sal was there with me. This was in the early 90s. We were in a small group together at another church, and we had a guy in that small group. He had a business partner, and they had opened a a, a video store. And the problem is the guy, in order to make more money, brought in X-rated videos to the video store. And so the guy in small group brought this up and said, what should we do? Well, he has a problem, you know, obviously get rid of him and, and all, but he had a problem. He was yoked together with an unbeliever. The unbeliever thinks, well, that's no problem whatsoever. What's the big deal? We're here to make money, aren't we? Well, for the believer, it is a big deal that although the purpose of the business is to make money, and there's nothing wrong with that, but not at any expense. And so we have to follow through in so many different areas of our relationships with this and I've seen it in the marriage relationship with a believer. Go ahead and turn back to Malachi. Yoke together with an unbeliever. And it just drags down the believer. I've never seen it pull up the unbeliever. Secondly, God through the prophet addresses their detestable ways and also their deserted wives. Now here's a great responsibility. You've been given these wives, these leaders, and now they have abused them. You're going to be held to a higher degree of accountability for that. Verses 14 through 16. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. Remember my World Trade Center illustration there? Says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now the wife of one's youth is their first wife. They had multiple wives. This is sin on their part. Now he says, did he not make them one having a remnant of the spirit? Well, you remember back in Genesis chapter one, let us make man in our image. And so he made them in his image. He made them male and female. And I pointed this out before. Now, God desired for me to be, to project the image of God. But he knew I couldn't totally do it by myself. And so what did he do? He brought me a, a Terry Ladaney, this woman from Oklahoma. Decided he needed an Oki. Sorry, Christian's over there too, and he's got a very serious look on his face. He's from Oklahoma as well. But he decided that's what he needed, a Californian and an Oklahoman to make an image of God. And so what did he do? He joined us together because it says, to fulfill my image, I will make them male and female. Now, in my particular case, I can never fulfill the image of God through my ministry without this wife that God has given me, without my wife that God has given me. God had not called me to be single, hasn't called her to be single, some people he has. But in this particular case, it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that he joined us together to be able to project the image of God. Now, when we got married in 1980, we weren't saved, and I had no clue about any of this, but it was all to lead for, well, to today, from this pulpit, and maybe even something that he has for us in the future that is even more, necessi- more of a necessity for us to be yoked together. Now, did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? Well, we know that God created one wife for Adam. With even a portion of the power, he could have created an Adam and an Eve and an Yvonne and a Yvette and so on down the line. But it, wasn't with the, it was not with the power of the Holy Spirit that he created them male and female and they were cleaved or they were glued or they were joined together. This is what God's desire was. Why would he do that? For the purpose of the generations. He desires godly children, godly offspring. A case in point to the negative, King David. How many? I don't know exactly how many wives. I think the Bible speaks of six wives that he had. And he had a mess of children. Now, I had four children, as I said. They were hard enough to keep tabs on just with four. Can you imagine if you had a mess of them? That's a biblical term. If you had a bunch, if you had 20 kids, can you imagine keeping track and raising up godly children? You know, multiple wives and multiple kids. It's not a good thing. That was sin on David's part. First wife was the wife of his youth. Anything after that was sin. And really, where did the effect came? That came in Absalom. That came in, well, so many of his children caused him so many problems. They didn't seem to have a heart for the Lord or the things of the Lord well, David wasn't training him up in the way that they should go because he blew everything out of proportion rather than being obedient to the Lord in that area. So the Jew, well, there was the keeping of the covenant because they knew of the promises of God. Verse 16, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. It covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Now, when it says spirit here, that's not the Holy Spirit. Take heed to your persona, if you will, that you do not deal treacherously, deal, deal compassionately with the, with with the one that God has given you. Uh, there, there, there's plenty of people here who've been divorced. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not speaking against that. I'm not saying that you should have, but I'm not speaking against it. But use those things of your past to minister for God's glory today because of the fear of the Lord. Minister to people that you see that are having difficult days and hard times. Tell them of the violence that occurred in your life because of that divorce. Even when it was warranted, even when it was biblically warranted, it's still what I've seen. I've never been divorced, but what I've experienced, the people I've ministered to, it rips the heart and soul out of people. And it's an ugly, difficult thing. It's a thing that ought not to be even mentioned within the body of Christ, but unfortunately it is. But I also have seen in in my life that remaining married, again, I've been married for 36 years, hasn't always been an easy thing. When you're married to somebody perfect like me, it can be hard because she just can't live up. I say that funny, but, but we're really two imperfect people. And so she's got her issues and I got my issues. And so there was a joining together the good parts. There's also joining together the hard things. And so it takes work over 35, 36 whatever, however many years. It takes work, and it takes effort. It takes overcoming one another. Never, There's no other relationship that you have to die to yourself more than you have to die to yourself in your marriage. And that's a hard thing to do. I'm still kind of learning the lesson. But I guarantee you this, if you do it, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing, and it's very well worth it. Why? Because that's what God blesses. You can come up with, every reason in the world why you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that, shouldn't remain, and all of this stuff. But the one, re, the one argument that I have for it, that's what God has said, that's what God will bless. And then thirdly, God through the prophet addresses their detestable ways, their deserted wives, and their distorted words. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? See, God, you can sin. And as you sin, nothing happened. No lightning came down out of the sky to to hit me or whatever. And so you think you can kind of move on and sin and sin again. And that's kind of the attitude that the leaders had back then. And so they were leading people astray by telling them sin doesn't matter. And you can hear that today. We're all basically good people. Well, we're not good people. We're very self-centered and selfish people. We're people, well, the only good that resides in us is that relationship that we have with God. And sin does matter. Sin does matter. We looked at this in, uh, in our Isaiah study a few weeks ago. It causes the face of God to turn from us. The sin that these priests were committing against their wives by casting off their first wives and going, well, it says they were covering the altar with tears. That means that the wife was coming and making sacrifice and pleading with God for their situation. Because a divorced woman in that society during that time would have a pretty hard time, she would be pretty vulnerable. And so she'd be covering that altar with his tears and the idea is she would leave and there would come this priest and making this great sacrifice to God. And God says, I'm having none of that. I'm having none of that. You have defiled my altar. You believe that sin doesn't matter? Well, if you believe that sin doesn't matter, there's never going to be a real repentance from your heart and there's never going to be change that occurs in your life. And then also they say that well, since God hasn't done anything, God will never do anything. Well, in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3-9, through 9, it says, "...knowing this first, that scoffers will come in in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation." For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, speaking of creation, by which the world that existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But behold, do not forget this one thing that the Lord, with the Lord, that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so I've got to take that in all the details of my life. A couple of weeks ago, I don't remember what service, I encourage you to count your blessings, but also recognize your sins. Repent of your sins. I'm not saying you're going to go to hell if you're a born-again believer. You're not going to hell, you're going to heaven. But nonetheless, be effective in the sight of God. Be cleansed daily through a continual repentance before the Lord and be used for His glory. Don't deal treacherously with one another. The competition that exists in your marriages today, stop it. Stop it. Die to yourself and surrender. If I surrender to Him, you know what He's going to do? He's going to walk all over me. If I surrender to her, you know what she's going to do? I'm not telling you to surrender to them. I'm telling you to surrender to God. If you surrender to God, then God's going to make the marriage work. You're going to have a marriage that you never dreamed that you would be able to have because it is supernaturally empowered by God. Look at the issues that you either have in your marriage or ever had in your marriage, and it was because of your self-centeredness. It was because you were more concerned about self than you were about this spouse whom you know that God has given you for the purpose of revealing the image of God first to your children and then out in society. And so this goes very deep. But the solution to it all is for us as individuals to have a fear of God, to respect God, to respect who he is, and to be obedient to his Word. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that your word guides us, especially in this area, this area that can be so difficult, this area that can be so hard, but unfortunately this area, Lord, that is so neglected. And so, Father, I just pray for those who are married here, Lord, that you would bless them. I pray, Father, through the word that was spoken here today, that you would enable them, Father, to find unity. We've got to start somewhere, and this is a great place to start. And so, Father, again, we know that you are God. We know that you are mindful of us because you've saved us. You died on the cross for us. We know that you are with us day by day and that your word tells us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We know, Lord, that you do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so, Father, I pray that each born-again believer here today would truly embrace that. As our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed right now, I just want to ask that everybody who is married here today, that you would just stand up and allow me to pray over you. Just stand up where you are with your spouse, and if your spouse isn't with you today, that's okay. Just stand up. Father, you see these who stand before you, Lord, and Father, as they have entered into this divine covenant that you have given mankind, it was an institution that is so dear to your heart. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. I pray, Father, that they would not be self-centered, but they would be others oriented especially those who are that person that you have given to them to care for and to minister to. Lord, I pray that the wives would respect their husbands. I pray, Father, that the men would sacrificially love their wives. And, Father, if there's anybody here with an excuse why they should not do that, I would just give them the truth of why they should. It's just simply, Lord, because you have told us to do so. Again, this is what you bless. And so, Father, I pray that you would build this church and you would start at these marriages, that you would start at these marriages, that together they would become strong in their home, they would become strong in this work of ministry at the church, and they would become strong outside into society, Father, and we would see, Lord, you doing great things. And so, Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, God, that you'd be glorified through all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?